Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today we're continuing our mini-series on learning differences in music, and I'm speaking with Dr. McGann Warrenchak about the phenomenon of dysmusia. Dr. Warrenchak is piano teacher, lifelong music learner, and a federal public servant based in Ottawa, Ontario. Her musical journey unofficially began as a toddler when she identified violins and guitars on television, and by the age of seven, she started piano lessons in her hometown of Dunville, Ontario. A passion for learning several subjects led Megan to earn a Bachelor of Arts in Music with a minor in French from Brock University in 2014, a Master of Arts in Music from the University of Ottawa in 2016, and a Doctorate in Philosophy and Human Kinetics from the University of Ottawa in 2022. Intersections of music and language have been a part of Megan's trajectory as she studied to be a high school French teacher for several years. Her interest in piano pedagogy flourished in her university career as she learned about different approaches to teaching piano technique and music reading. Her master's thesis about the reflective journaling emerged organically from a self-guided journal project to piano practice, while her doctoral thesis about dysmusia developed from a collaboration between her perspective of learning differences as a person with mild vision challenges, as well as her supervisor's established research in the field of music reading. Today, McGann continues to teach piano to students of all ages as she finds her footing in a post-PhD world. Non-musical hobbies include finding all the blends of Earl Grey tea in existence, acrylic paintings, scrapbooking and weightlifting. Welcome. It's so good to have you here today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so happy to be here and so grateful. And yeah, it's just the first time I get to talk about my PhD after my PhD. So I feel like this is, you get to be the first to know. I didn't know that. I'm so, oh, I'm so pleased that I get to be the first and that you're going to share your wisdom with our audience. Really excited to talk with you. Well, before we get into your PhD research on dysmusia, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what led you down that path of becoming a musician? Sure. I always feel a bit of imposter syndrome about this one because I come from a very small town. While full of music and culture, didn't necessarily have the same opportunities as my peers in, in the bigger cities such as Ottawa. Uh, I genuinely started piano because my parents had one of those digital keyboards with the sounds on it in the 90s and they caught me tinkering with it a few times and they sought the advice of my brother's school teacher who was a tenor and he put us in touch with a couple of music teachers and off I went to take lessons for the next 20 some odd years. <laughs> um, my first, my first piano was this old upright that was secondhand because my parents didn't know how long I would stay with it. And I played on it for several years until my second teacher said, no, it's time for you to upgrade. And then as typical for most piano students, I had more like a practice room upright, a, a kawaii for several years, and it's still my personal favorite instrument today. And I always thought I was destined to be some kind of music educator slash musician. Being in the spotlight was never really my thing. I'd always get butterflies and past a certain point in university, I asked myself, do I want to get this performance anxiety every time? Is it is it worth it? Even though no one in my immediate family does anything musical, which is kind of baffling given my own trajectory, I do have several musical cousins. My uh, older cousin, John Michael, he died unfortunately in 2006, but he was a composer and a really, really gifted musician. And I always looked up to him and play me this song, play me that song. <laughs> and uh, my other cousin, Clarice, owns a YouTube channel and other accounts for um, music for meditation mm -hmm. and as an operatic soprano. So I think there must be something from our grandmother <laughs> that has <laughs> something in the DNA. Pedagogy though, I think has been my passion for a very long time. I remember distinctly being in high school when my professor, piano professor had told me, oh, there's the German school of technique and the Russian school 
school of technique and this composer believed in this and this this person believed in that and, and I it occurred to me oh playing piano isn't just playing the notes at the right time <laughs> with the right finger numbers like I was led to believe for like 10 years mm-hmm. and and I was determined to figure out what pedagogy meant I auditioned for university and they asked me what do you want to do with your music degree and I said I want to study pedagogy not really knowing what that meant <laughs> in full at, at 18 but I was going to find out and then I did my master's at a time when I was like teacher's college masters i don't know went through with the masters and i was hooked i just love learning so much i stayed and i continued on to the phd now i'm just trying to figure out what's next that was a long answer no no i love that i always love hearing the origin story of every musician because some of them you know they were like i was bored to be a musician and some were like i don't know that i call myself a musician even though i play music every day and so it's really interesting to see like the path that brought people to the careers that they're in today. So you recently finished your PhD researching dysmusia in piano students. So for those who don't know, can you explain what dysmusia is and how did you come about researching it? Effectively, dysmusia comprises persistent differences or difficulties with music reading that can't be explained by a lack of practice or motivation or by the use of an instructional method or a series of books or by the musician's intelligence. was first referred to as an extension of dyslexia for text reading. Um, Probably people started talking about it more in the the 90s and early 2000s, that if you had dyslexia, you probably also had difficulties in music reading. And this is still the pervasive assumption Mm -hmm. that if you have dyslexia, you will also have difficulties with music reading. A bit later, it was proposed that there could be a dyslexia for music reading, meaning that it could be related, but could also be its own condition. And um, only very, very recently, people refer to it as dysmusia, just to avoid the natural confusion with the two terms. We best understand, though, dysmusia related to dyslexia because the musicians talking about it, most of them have dyslexia. And whether we think it's the same or different, that is the way that we've had to frame the research in the early stages because we can't make that leap to say it's its own thing until we have more information. Because our brains like to have an idea of what it could look like, we use a dyslexia model to think of dysmusia as difficulties primarily with music reading and writing, audiation, and perhaps cognitive skills, motor skills, and visual skills. But these last three are the least tested at this time. Just like in dyslexia, the strongest links are between reading, writing, and auditory. And there are some links with the other three, but those are way, way more tentative. The whole journey to this topic began when I was finishing my master's. My supervisor, Dr. Camo, said that if I wanted to do a PhD with him, I could change course from studying what I previously was doing, which was reflective journaling, and take up a music reading topic. This was a field I had studied in my courses, but never really gave much thought to before that. Because I like to make connections between things all the time, my brain went to how when I was a kid, I needed really, really thick glasses for both reading and for music. It was to the point where um, I had double vision 
when I was playing piano and my teacher would tell me to make my sheets larger. So whenever I had a piano exam, the examiner would say, you're the one who needed the big sheets. And then they'd bring out this like A4 size piece of paper with the sight reading for me. It was kind of a little bit embarrassing, but eventually I got the appropriate glasses to correct that. And I've been okay ever since, but it made me wonder if there was other kids who had that same issue and I can do some eye tracking studies at the health sciences labs in the university. And Professor Camo thought, oh, I wonder if like this could be related to dyslexia in some way. And I suggested I can try to find a link. And I did a tentative link between various visual challenges and, and dyslexia, but that research is still very contested. And I would have to to set it up as a dyslexia study first. So I shelved the vision the vision piece for a while and thought that I would just focus on music and dyslexia, but that turned out to be a much larger challenge than I bargained for. And I spent the subsequent five some odd years trying to categorize it and explaining to people what it could mean. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I love that you, you brought that personal connection to it, because I think that's often the most powerful research is something that a previous professor of mine, Dr. Nadia Buzara, always says, like, start in your own backyard, because your backyard research is the most powerful, like it's something that you have a connection to, it drives you. And so I thought that's really interesting that maybe there's a link here. And even though that wasn't specifically the path that you went on, it still brought you to this study on dysmusia, which is so important, it's so needed. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned it a little bit, but is dysmusia linked to any other forms of dyslexia or auditory processing disorders? Like, are there strong enough links? Do we have enough studies to to know that or or not quite? Um, I think I'll answer in two parts, both to dyslexia and then to auditory processing. For the first part about other forms of dyslexia, the research is very young, so I'm not comfortable in definitively saying it's related to other forms of dyslexia, at least not on the empirical evidence that I gained on my study or from the evidence that I read about in the literature. However, given that my research showed that musicians with dysmusia were self-reporting, also being diagnosed with dyslexia alongside other related disorders such as dyscalculia and dysgraphia. It is likely that there is a link, but this needs to be confirmed in the research. Secondly, we know that dyslexia is not a one-size-fits-all disorder itself and that individuals may not consistently have deficits in one or all of the areas, but that can include auditory processing. I can give you a couple examples in a musical situation just for a, just for some food for thought. Musician A really struggles with music reading, as well as with any tasks regarding processing auditory stimuli, such as identifying pitches as being higher or lower, correctly writing out notes and dictation exercises, which also implicates writing, motor, and cognitive abilities. Musician B really struggles with music reading, but has been told they have a good ear and this is how they prefer to learn music. They may memorize music by listening to recordings so they get by without reading notation, but a big flaw of this comparison is that we just don't know the extent of teacher influence. The mainstream pedagogy still is that students with dyslexia probably have dysmusia, so the approach to teaching them is very dyslexia-oriented, which ignores the fact that not all students with dyslexia are the same. Did the teacher start the student with an ear-based method from the beginning? Did the teacher start with a reading approach only to find one later that it wasn't benefiting the student. So I encounter a lot of perception bias, at least from the accounts I read. Some students have all the resources from the outset 
and then some are locked into a method that doesn't work for them for years thinking that they're just not talented for music only to find that there's this whole world of ways to teach piano and music out there that they just didn't have available so the answer is we don't know i did have a very very interesting comment at my thesis defense from a jury member who is a pianist and a singer and she asked um, to what extent hearing the music so audiation is involved in music reading can you read music without audiating so it was kind of ask yourself is that where the where the issue is yeah. I'm not sure if this creates more questions than it answers, but that's that's what I was thinking about it. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, the research is young and we're still waiting on more tests in order to be able to confirm. So I'm interested to see years down the road what more we'll know about dysmusia. So how would one know if their student or perhaps even they themselves have dysmusia? Is there a possibility? Like, can you get tested like you can get tested for dyslexia? Has a test even become available? From the testing situation, no. My research paved a way for it to become available. I collected and or modified existing tests specifically meant for piano students between the ages of approximately 4 and 15 years old who had introductory to about level 10 grasp of music reading, RCM, and we did a lot of baseline testing of children without dyslexia, but not, not nearly enough to form a, a baseline for a large-scale study. We would need several more hundred participants for that, but that is definitely um, an avenue of ongoing research at the Piano Lab at the University of Ottawa. After I graduated, I passed the torch to the research groups at the lab to continue that on. From an observational standpoint, if I was in my teacher's shoes, I would look for persistent difficulties with music reading that can include but are not limited to naming notes on the staff and or the keyboard incorrectly, both in terms of uh, time and accuracy, maintaining a them when reading both rehearsed and pieces at sight. So you would start sight reading something and there'd be lots of stop starts, therefore losing the, the sense of rhythm. Constantly repeating notes, switching hands. So if uh, it's written for the left hand, playing it with your right hand, playing in the incorrect clefts, ignoring your finger numbers, keeping in mind that all of these are different mappings. Your student might have a problem associating letter names to pitches. An example that comes to my mind in the study, which could be a limitation, is several of my participants know their note names in letters, whereas others knew them in solfa. So it could be if you have difficulties with letters in particular and mapping those letters to the keys and those letters to the notes on the staff and those letters to the sounds, that might be an issue with the mapping. But they might have no issue just seeing a symbol and playing it on the piano without telling you the note name. Mm -hmm. So it's very high variability there. And if I'm a student, it depends. Young kids don't have a concept of being different, which is which yeah. is wonderful. And we should never let that diminish because at some point in time, students with dysmusia or dyslexia or any other learning difference feel othered because someone says, oh, you have dyslexia, you must be different. And then it gets in their mind that they might, might not be as talented or as capable. And you want to not make them feel that way by saying, do you notice that you're different by doing these things differently than your peers? But I think I would encourage my students to just have an open dialogue with me and say, can you tell me if like you have a question? Because questions are, are always welcome. Questions are something bad. Questions don't mean that you don't understand. They're just an opportunity to, to talk with you as the teacher. So I think getting them to communicate 
that they don't understand a concept or they need it to be re-explained is, is probably a good thing. So if you're an adult student, however, I'd probably think in terms of memory, that seems to be a common theme based on what I've read. If you've been learning a passage and you spend an hour memorizing it, but can't remember it the next day, right. this tends to be a common theme. Memory, while it's a cognitive skill, see, this is where it gets tricky because uh, Dyslexia is usually associated with a cognitive de deficit, but we don't know if dysmusia is also associated with a cognitive deficit. So is it that dys their dyslexia or is it something specifically in the music domain that makes it impossible to memorize music? One particular count I read was a multi-instrumentalist who only had this problem, I believe it was on the uh, on the guitar, where he had no problems memorizing cello. So I think it's very both domain specific and instrument specific. Right. Which which is real fun to measure quantitatively. Right. <laughs> we need more more researchers in this area. I mean, and you've already gotten into it. You've touched on it already. But what what might be some of the frustrations that come with having dysmusia, and how could teachers best support their students? I love that you said create an open space for questions. Is there is there another way that we can help students, particularly if, if students even know that they say, I, I have dyslexia, I find note reading frustrating. What's a way that we can support them more? For the frustrations piece first, um, from the literature, there are several reports about feeling compared to other people, such as why can't I learn as quickly as others at, at my level? I even, in fact, um, had a participant who did not have a diagnosis of dyslexia, so whether they had dysmusia or not, not, not my place to say, but their parent told me that the student was constantly compared to their older sibling. Why can't you learn as fast as your sibling? And that led them to quit piano lessons because they felt just so untalented and so which is definitely not true. And we know that learning isn't something that can be measured across the board in the same way. But either way, this is a common theme being told that or a sense that they're not getting it as quickly as other people being insulted. Uh, my another committee member asked me, why does the literature on even dyslexia and music not exist prior to the early 1990s? And the answer is, quite frankly, People are downright rude and insulting. And if you dig deep in the dyslexia research, you'll find some stuff in there that's appalling and it makes you wonder how any of us became musicians past a certain point, but especially children who are so impressionable. And we know that dyslexia and dysmusia are learning differences. They're not saying you can't become a musician or you can't become anything. As far as teachers and the role that we can play, I think be willing to explore. I know when I was a new teacher and even now to this day, I feel comfortable. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but comfortable in your methods and comfortable in what you know. And it can be scary to look, to go to a workshop and learn something new because that means you might have to change the way you teach. Right. So we'd, so we'd rather we'd rather make the students fit our mold rather than be willing to explore something that works better for them. So I think uh, that's a big one that I've thought about. Another one is to not necessarily abandon music reading. Sometimes teachers at the first sight of, oh, my student might have dysmusia will say, okay, I'm just not going to teach them how to read music. They're just going to learn by ear because they're very good at that and we're not going to bother reading music. But just because it takes a bit longer to learn to read music doesn't mean it's not worthwhile or rewarding or that the student doesn't want to. I think again with the method piece, there's just so many ways to teach music reading that perhaps it's just a matter of finding another way. Either just some kind of combined approach with uh, 
the oral piece, the kinesthetic piece. I attended a workshop, and I might touch on this later, but Dr. Scott Price of the Francis Clark Center a couple of years ago, and he has all of his students improvise. And I remember learning about how he uses the improv as a way to lead them into the reading piece. And that was interesting to me. So the students are already comfortable within a certain finger position or hand position before reading music in that position. So that takes away that potential issue. And I just thought that was wonderful. And I thought, oh, if only all teachers could could integrate something like that. So that got me thinking also that, as we know with dyslexia, that there's a high comorbidity with other learning differences. While we don't know this to be true yet with dysmusia, we can safely make an educated guess that it could be. So if your student is presenting difficulties with music reading, it might be something that's related more towards ADHD mm. or autism or dyslexia for that matter. So it's, is there memory challenges because of a cognitive deficit from dyslexia or is it something to do with the music? So these are just, the teacher has to effectively become a bit of a researcher for their own student to be their advocate and to find a way forward that suits them. That is amazing advice that we have to be the advocate and be the researcher. We we can't stop learning once we become teachers. Signing up to be a teacher is signing up to be a lifelong student as well. For sure. As I know you know well. <laughs> so are there resources available specific to students with dysmusia? Are there like method books or teaching resources, anything like that? Or is, is that sort of not on the radar? Uh, there are some resources that might be helpful, but they're not dysmusia specific. I would say also there are resources for teaching music to children with dyslexia and as such are founded on dyslexia research. But keep in mind that um, people think that we understand dyslexia. We do not. I have friends in the field who are um, in school and are um, in occupational and speech language therapy and they tell me that dyslexia itself isn't being understood as it was even 10 years ago. Right. So when you think about how long music method books take to develop, that some of our resources are 20, 30 years old, operating on, on older research that may or may not still be useful. Some of it definitely is. That said, a method that continues to be in circulation and edited today is the Color Staff Method by Margaret Hubicki. Okay, great. So it, she was specifically designed an approach for children with dyslexia to color certain lines of the staff. Mm -hmm. so that the notes wouldn't jump around as much because that's something that typically happens in text reading that the, the letters jump around the page and mm -hmm. some musicians do say that the notes jump around the page and while it hasn't been proven empirically in fact it might be the opposite in terms of empirical studies and what they've they've found anecdotally color does help students find the notes on the staff much easier and more consistently there are other inclusive methods that are labeled as such on their website but do not specifically mention dyslexia or dysmusia are uh, music for young children and kinder music while they're not explicitly labeled as such either i would say like orf and kodai and any kind of oral based group classes tend to be a good place to start looking if you might think your young, specifically young child has dysmusia. For other resources, I was just again touching upon the Francis Clark Center and Dr. Scott Price because he does a lot of work with students with exceptionalities, especially students with autism. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's often comorbid with dyslexia, so a lot of the information can still be very useful, especially just, if anything, just the open-minded approach to being a teacher, as well as the workshops at the Lotus Center in Ottawa with Dr. Parks. She's also a very strong advocate for music for exceptional learners, and I know that she's done a little bit of research into uh, dyslexia and music as well. 
again, coming from the perspective of like, these are approaches that are, are useful for children with dyslexia. They're kind of taking it forward of what my project and thinking what could be domain specific to music, but that's still an un unanswered question. Those are great resources. And I'll have, I'll have links to all of those things that you mentioned. And um, Dr. Scott Price's work is also really great. I, I really admire the work that he does and um, the really incredible workshops that, that he puts forward. And often the Francis Clark Center ones, I would say most often are online, I think besides their yearly conferences, but they're mostly online. So that makes it accessible for teachers all over the place. So that's great. Thank you for pointing out those resources. I'll be sure to link that. So we've mentioned it a few times, but like dysmusia is a relatively young field of research. Are there resources that we can point musicians to, to understand Understand more about dysmusia, I would say that your dissertation is like an amazing place to start. <laughs> but are there other resources or books that you recommend for teachers that are interested in learning more about this area? Certainly. Um, for a complete bibliography that can be found in my thesis, it's accessible at the UOttawa Research Depository for free. You can read the PDF, especially in the, because there are four articles that have separate references and then a final bibliography at the end. I only reiterate this just because when I was doing my research, often the resources are either hard copy only or available only in specific libraries. So they might not be accessible, at least in links to the average person using using their local library. So it's a good place to start looking and then you can reserve the books through your local university library. If you're specifically interested about the experiences of musicians of all ages who all have dyslexia, who believe their dyslexia impacts their musical learning, I would recommend the books by T.R. Miles. Dyslexia, A Positive Approach, and Dyslexia, Opening New Doors. Most chapters are from the standpoint of musicians who report on their difficulties, though there are some chapters from the standpoint of dyslexia researchers. Keeping in mind, these materials are approximately 20 years old at this time. T.R. Miles is unique because he was both a amateur musician and a psychologist. So it was through, in large part, his research that dyslexia and music is understood in the way it is today. He was a founding member of what's called the uh, British Dyslexia Association, and it's a website that has all sorts of um, resources about um, teaching students with dyslexia how to play music. And several researchers also come from that group as well. For further academic resources, here's a few different perspective approaches you can take. For an introduction of musical dyslexia as its own entity separate from text dyslexia, check out uh, the authors Cuddy and Hebert. They have a seminal article called Music Reading Deficiencies in the Brain from 2006 from the journal Advances in Cognitive Psychology, which, which uses a definition that I included in my thesis that it should be its own entity and separate from dyslexia for text reading. For the first case study of for dysmusia, well, in that paper referred to as musical dyslexia, it's about an adult singer uh, it's called A Case Study of Music and Text Dyslexia by Hebert and colleagues from 2008 and the journal Music Percep Musical Perception. For the origin story of the word dysmusia rather than dyslexia for music, there is a short article called Developmental Dysmusia by Neil Gordon in 2001 in Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. For a systematic review of all the peer-reviewed articles of individuals with dyslexia in a musical setting, you can read A Systematic Review of Music and Dyslexia by Rolka and Silverman from 2015, keeping in mind that was uh, up to date as of eight years ago. Right. So there might have been some more research since then. And finally, if you're interested 
in that uh, link between auditory and readings that you brought up earlier. Uh, I think you would really like the article, The Enigma of Dyslexic Musicians by Weiss and colleagues from 2014 in the journal Neuropsychologica. That is a study where they took a group of adult musicians with dyslexia, a group of adult musicians without dyslexia, a group of adult non-musicians with and without dyslexia, and they compared them on a bunch of auditory tests to see if there was any effects of musical training on the dyslexic brain. So that brought some interesting trends to light that I think I saw a bit of too in my own study with children. I think some of the same effects were, were also present too, so it's a good uh, reason to continue in music if you strongly think that your auditory skills will have an impact on your life somehow, but the links are, are pretty strong the longer you stay in music. That's great, and I will I'll make sure that we have all of those articles linked in the in the show notes and, and that people have access to those. That's really great. Thank you so much for giving a really thorough uh, <laughs> list to get us started for those who are interested in, in learning more about this. I'm curious, was there anything surprising that came out of your research? And did that spur on where this might go next? I guess you could say it was surprising in the sense that because it had been studied before, anything I found was surprising. <laughs> Even if I might have had an inclination uh, right. that it would come out this way. One of my studies was a, a case study on a young musician with dyslexia, a 10-year-old, and she had all the same tests that the baseline group had, that is music sight reading, rapid fire music note reading on the staff. Uh, she had a, an audiation test from Edwin Gordon, and she had a whole bunch of other cognitive and motor tests as well. And even though this is a student with dyslexia who in her school, she is behind about a grade level on reading and in mathematics, because she also has dyscalculia, and she has difficulties with writing as well and has to go practice that multiple times a week in therapy. She outperformed basically everyone in her age group on sight reading. Interesting. Well, if you slow down the videos and you watch her compared to other participants, there, yes, there was differences between how they approached the piece, but to say one approach was better than the other, for example, she might have taken a bit more time in the preview period because they were, even though you tell them you're not supposed to have a preview, some of them still take a couple seconds to adjust before they start playing. So even though I might have taken a bit more at the outset, that once you started playing, the notes were correct and the rhythms were, were mostly correct too. And I think it really paves the way for future research to argue that dysmusia is a domain-specific condition. Right. Because it was to the point where her piano teacher was surprised when she found out she had dyslexia. She didn't know. Right. Yeah. And and she herself, a student, didn't think of her dyslexia as a difference in her music learning. Yeah. She didn't she didn't feel like it made her different or that she had to learn differently. So I think it's a really, really strong argument for not making assumptions that students with dyslexia will automatically have the same difficulties at both within themselves and within the possibility that dysmusia is its own entity. As far as practical next steps for me, I'm trying to publish my articles. I took some time off after my PhD, but I might get back to that. As far as the projects that are ongoing that you could do if you happen to be in the National Capital Region, I implore you to go visit the Piano Lab run by Dr. Camo, and he is still leading a study on this. So I think they're still collecting both baseline data as well as data on musicians with dyslexia who are children and adolescents. So if, if that is something that interests your listeners, they can certainly reach out to the, the lab about it. If I could do all the careers in the world, <laughs> I would certainly like to to see through that study about eye tracking and, and mm -hmm. music reading. I think that was something I left rather unfinished, but for the moment I'm satisfied with uh, work that I did just organizing dysmusia 
as a concept. Certainly. Certainly. And we're grateful that you've done that research and started to lay more of a foundation so that we can understand the phenomenon a little bit more. Thank you so much for your work. Well, it's been a real pleasure getting to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. No wrong answers. Go with your gut. Can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician? Well, not specifically. A few years ago, I was cleaning and I found a notebook dating back to when I was eight years old, where I doodled. When I grow up, I want to be a piano teacher. I have no collection of, of doing that, but I clearly was very little and the doodle was, you know, very disproportionate and I must have loved it from the start and must have been a natural path for me. I love that. It was written in the stars. <laughs> Do you have a favorite piece or song to perform currently? I feel like such a musician to say, no, I don't have just one. Back in my performance days, which feels like a millennium ago, I, I really enjoyed anything that anything by Brahms. I just really connected to him and the texture and just sentiment of the music was really resonating with me. But for now, I've been rotating through uh, lots of music by um, uh, film composers like Joe Hisaishi. Oh, and great. Koji Kondo for video game soundtracks. Those are those are kind of my my happy place as I'm relaxing post PhD. I love that. That's yeah. so great. <laughs> Have you ever been given bad career advice before, and what was it? I guess just throughout my career, no matter what career I've been aiming towards, whether whether that was academia or back when I wanted to be a high school teacher, or even now in the government, just burned out senior officials saying this is a miserable career. You know, I remember going to conferences when I was still in academia and senior professors would say, there's no tenure jobs anymore. You're going to burn yourself out when you're really young and you're not going to have any stability and it's going to be awful. And then I hear from senior teachers in school, oh, the admin doesn't support you. It's going to be awful. And you know, while some of these things may be very true and worth consideration before you jump into a career. I think there's there's something for the people who say that, uh, you know, lo love what you do and you won't work a day in your life, even though I felt, feel that's kind of trite. I feel like having that, that passion for something is very important while knowing that there's difficulties, of course. So I feel like just that negativity is not, not good. Certainly. Yeah. No. And it's, it is something that, that we encounter, I think in any career path is that people who are higher up, oh, you're not going to enjoy it. But I mean, there's something to be said about the the early, early stages. And so far, I really enjoy being a music teacher. I think that you also enjoy doing it as well. Uh, no regrets about that. Yes. What is good musical or career advice that you can pass on to up and coming musicians? For me, I think it's, it's uh, very important to, to have goals that you can work work towards while giving yourself grace to know that your journey is going to look different from the next person. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a person who falls easily into the trap of thinking, oh, that person took an alternate route and look how much further along they are. When in reality, it's um, you can't compare your journey to someone else's. And if you really want to do something, you should go for it and know that your journey is unique because you're unique. And that's that's the beauty of it. I love that. Great. That's great advice. Uh, what are you listening to right now? It feels a bit sacrilegious to say as a pianist that I've been listening to guitar music. <laughs> but I feel I feel like when I need to just really relax, I, I put on some uh, guitar soundtracks, again, film uh, soundtracks, and I just... And I just really can find a happy, happy moment in that. I love it. Well, thanks for coming on Loud and Clear. Do you mind letting our audience know where they can find you? And I'll have links to all of that, what we've talked about in the show notes. Of course, um, you can find me both on Instagram at, at MW Music Lessons, as well as Facebook as MW Music Lessons. Perfect. 
Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your research. I just loved it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. My pleasure. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.